I could have your attention. I think there is still time. Can I have a thumbs up or thumbs down from the Alton Roche Society? Can people still uh, break their Lenten fast and get some things? Or will the doors slam shut now? Oh, oh they're slamming shut. Okay. Happy, uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> Um, well, uh, again, I'd like to thank all of you for being here tonight. Let us start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Father, on this Feast of St. Patrick, we thank you for the example that St. Patrick has set for us. He who was abducted, kidnapped at a young age, put into servitude, slavery, nonetheless was called by God to return back to those who had harmed him, to bring the fullness of truth and love to those that were previously using him. We need this example today. So many are in slavery in various forms. May we help them and, of course, use the power of Christ that we may be set free from any form of hatred and slavery to sin. And may we help others to be freed by the love and truth of Christ. St. Patrick, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'd like to welcome all of you again to this uh, talk of the Lenten Lecture Series. Just like Laetare Sunday, we are, which is coming up, we are now past the midway point. Uh, we are now talk number four on this series of the Architects of Modernity, the construction of our modern-day Babel. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. David Devil. He's an associate professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas, where it's warmer, Houston, Texas. A senior contributor to the Imaginative Conservative and a contributing editor for Gilbert. He is currently a member of the Board of Directors for the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He is a past Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute and also the 2013 winner of the Acton Institute's Novak Award. With Jessica Houghton Wilson, he co-edited Solzhenitsyn the American, and American Culture, the Russian Soul in the West. In addition to his academic work, his public and popular writings have appeared in the Catholic World Report, City Journal, First Things, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune, as well as the Wall Street Journal. He lives in Sugarland, Texas, with his wife, Kathy, and their children. They've all traveled up here together. The title of his talk is The Empirical Strikes Back, but because of his return, it should be The Catholic Jedi Returns. <laughs> or I messed that up, didn't I? The Return of the Catholic Jedi. Oh, well. With that, I am happy to invite Dr. David Devil forward. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me back. It's a deep pleasure and a privilege to be able to join you for this series. Uh, it was an opportunity for my family and uh, me to come back to this place and to all of you whom we deeply love and also to freeze to death. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I had to say, when I, I told some students in Texas that we were going to Minnesota for spring break, they, they gave me some strange looks. And it wasn't just about the weather that we were likely to have, but because of the topic. Right. Better? All right. Um, you know, modernity, epistemology, philosophy, how exactly, one of my students asked, is this going to be a Lenten talk? 
Now, of course, the answer should have been obvious. Haven't you, Anna, I said? Haven't you had to endure my lectures all of this semester? <laughs> Very high church authorities have assured me that for those who've gone to confession, gone to Holy Mass, and have kept free from the desire to murder me during this lecture, you will have 300 years of penance removed in an indulgence. So, but seriously, what do theories of how we know things and how we think have to do with Lent? Isn't this just another example of pointy-headed abstraction? Well, I hope I don't have to tell this crowd that the way we think about our world and even the way we think about our own thinking has a great deal to do with Christian life. After all, when our Lord was challenged by the Pharisees to say which of the 613 enumerated laws in the Old Covenant was the most important, he responded by giving two of them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The love of God is given priority. And it is a matter of heart and soul, certainly, but also one of your mind. In fact, the word for repentance in the New Testament is metanoia. That noia comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. Repentance itself is not just a matter of feeling grief or sadness at things you've done in your past life, but it is more importantly a matter of changing your mind. St. Paul gives the same idea when he talks about the Christian's task of offering yourself as a living sacrifice. In the 12th chapter of Romans, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Far from intellectual matters being not so important, it is the development of our minds that is one of the main tasks that we have. We human beings are rational animals. We do things on purpose, and yet our own minds are often hidden from us. That's why if you've ever conversed with a counselor or a therapist, you've probably been asked, well, what do you think? Now, the obvious response would be, especially if you're paying for this session, I know what I think. You tell me what you, you, know, you think. The clock's running. But much as I hate to admit it, those questions are good ones, aren't they? The real task is quite often figuring out exactly what we are thinking. Quite often when we do figure that out, we discover that we've adopted a lot of ways of thinking that are either sinful or simply mistaken. We can discover that quite often we have been guided in our thinking either by evil spirits or by the spirit of the age, what we can say in German, the zeitgeist. The spirit of the age is almost always a combination of good and bad, a mixture of ideas and impulses that are meant to correct the distortions of previous ways of thinking. And they usually end up in introducing new distortions with them. This whole series is about modernity, a period whose name is ultimately derived from the Latin adverb modo, which can have a lot of meanings, but in this case, it means presently, recently, or just now. Modern began to be used during the 17th century's so-called age of reason. 
in the 18th century's so-called enlightenment to indicate an attitude and quite often the stated belief that what happened in the past was inferior to the way we do things now. That's the attitude C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Some people, including some historians, will tell you that modernity actually ended almost a century ago. Or some will say, well, it ended 34 years ago when the Berlin Wall fell. We all live, they say, in a time called post-modernity. I think there's something to that. We seem to be moving out onto uncharted waters these days that seem to be completely free of reason. If in the 19th century the Catholic Church was still defending the legitimacy of Christian faith against the all-encompassing claims of reason and science, by the late 20th century, Pope John Paul II was writing about defending the legitimacy of human reason <clears throat> to come to any conclusions about the world. Fides et Ratio, his 1998 encyclical letter, took note of this new skepticism about reason, a skepticism that he said bordered on nihilism. Right? Nihilism, from nihil, nothing. I think that's correct. Nihilism, the belief that there's no overarching meaning to any life, no philosophical, religious, or moral principles to guide us, is all around us, and it's pretty compatible with tyranny. It's something that's being pushed on us slowly but surely, sometimes quickly but surely. In his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis put it this way, a dogmatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of rule which is not tyranny or an obedience which is not slavery. Unless there's a truth to judge, our obedience often becomes simply that, slavery. How did we get to this point, however? It's a complicated story. It's one that you're hearing parts of each week. We arrive at the particular ism, thus, that I've been asked to talk about tonight, empiricism. What is empiricism? Now, dictionary definitions will give you a little bit of help. Merriam-Webster tells you that one of the definitions is a theory that all knowledge originates in experience. In terms of the history of philosophy, that gets you somewhere, but it's a pretty broad term, and it would probably include Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, the latter of whom said there is nothing in the intellect that is not first in the senses. Now, let me assure you that I am not here to argue that the problems of modernity are with Thomas Aquinas. But if you read any en en encyclopedia of philosophy articles or any historical accounts, you'll find that the definitions of empiricism are many. Some mean by this term not the understanding that all our concepts originate in sense experience, but that all of them have reference to something that can be experienced. Some say that any rational beliefs must be justified by some sort of experience. There are plenty of further distinctions to be drawn, as the philosophers are wont to do, and there are many forms of empiricism. Now, if I were a professional philosopher, as my wife is, this lecture might have been about all of the differences between all of the, the philosophers who are called empiricists. John Locke, George Berkeley, spelled Berkeley, David Hume, and perhaps later the philosophers in the utilitarian tradition, uh, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, I could have told you all about the differences they had between each other and the broad differences they had as a group 
from the group of philosophers who emphasized knowledge derived independently from experience. They were known as rationalists, the two most famous being Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant. But there are four reasons why I will not go on to give that sort of talk, even if some tiny number of you were really hoping for it. One, I am not qualified to go into depth on the particulars of these thinkers. Two, it would be too long to do even if I were. Three, most of you would not get your 300 years indulgence because you would immediately begin plotting and perhaps acting for my death. <laughs> And four, I don't think we need to do this to see the big picture. So what is the big picture? Well, if we're going to talk about one figure who's most important tonight, it is Francis Bacon. Probably all of you are aware of his famous line, either from a history class or from the 1970s animated shorts known as Schoolhouse Rock, who taught us that knowledge is power. Now, what kind of knowledge was he talking about? Well, Bacon was a devout Anglican Christian who believed that natural science was best done on the basis of a rigorous investigation of physical realities, experiments designed to test what seemed to be the case, and a skeptical approach to the results one achieved. He believed that science was best done inductively, meaning that the rigorous investigation involved a lot of observations before the scientists started to generalize, quantify things, and then come up with a theory that would be testable experimentally. Now, is there anything wrong with this as a model for natural or physical science? In a general sense, I think all of us, even those who sit around cursing the darkness of the 21st century, don't have a problem with the scientific method as a general method of how we approach questions of physical science. In the stereotyped ways it's presented as a kind of objective and detached program that scientists rather mechanically follow, it's false. But scientists know that and only treat it as a rough approximation of what they do anyway. The general ideals of physical scientific research are what we're referring to, and they've been pretty successful. We may prefer the 13th, the greatest of centuries, but nobody has ever thought of inventing a time machine to go back to visit Thomas Aquinas' dentist. <laughs> no, we like empiricism in science, and we like what it's done for us. You may remember that movie, Jerry Maguire, in which Cuba Gooding Jr.'s football player says to the titular sports agent, played by Tom Cruise, show me the money. Show me the money, Jerry Maguire. Well, most of us moderns are very happy to shout, show me the studies. Show me the numbers when it comes to the physical science. I spent many years teaching and writing about John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman. Many people assume that because he was in favor of liberal education and faith, that he was somehow anti-scientific. Far from it. He thought that natural science was deeply important, and he established professorships in science at the Catholic University in Dublin that he founded. He even gave lectures on science that were published in his great work, The Idea of a University. And in the famous nine discourses that are the foundation of that book, he reflects on that empirical scientific world that Francis Bacon wrought and what Newman thinks of him. The philosophy of utility, you will say, gentlemen, has at least done its work. And I grant it, it aimed low, but it fulfilled its aim. His, 
meaning Bacon's, mission was the increase of physical enjoyment and social comfort, and most wonderfully, most awfully, has he filled, fulfilled his conception and his design. Almost day by day, we have fresh and fresh shoots and buds and blossoms, which are to ripen into fruit on that magical tree of knowledge which he planted, and to which none of us perhaps except the very poor, but owes, if not his present life, at least his daily food, his health, and his general well-being. He was, Newman says, the divinely provided minister of temporal benefits to all of us, so great that whenever I am forced to think of him as a man, I have not the heart for mere gratitude to speak of him severely. Now, I'm very sure that Newman would not have one of those signs that says, in this house we believe in science. But he, like we, appreciate it. Modern science, in its rigorous mathematical way of doing things, has indeed provided us with great powers. A magical tree of knowledge doesn't seem terribly out of place. Right? One of the most famous answers to a Reddit question is, um, you know, what, how could we describe the internet? And the, the two most re uh, important responses were uh, involved this. I have in my pocket, a, uh, a device with which I can access all of the world's own knowledge. What do I do with it? I argue with strangers and I play cat videos. <laughs> it's a magical tree of knowledge, but we don't always use it that well. Yet, as that answer indicates, though, technological progress for all its wonders is not a panacea for the ills of the world. You can put people in a technological heaven, but you cannot, with science, put heaven into them. For very soon after this way of scientific thinking entered into the intellectual landscape of the modern world, it came to deform it. Yet another reason why I'm not interested in rehearsing for you all the differences between the philosophers who are called empiricists and those who are called rationalists is that in the history of the modern world, they both kind of won. As Pope Benedict XVI said in his famous Regensburg lecture about 13 years ago, what happened in the modern world is that the notion of reason itself got contracted. We can imagine it as being put into a kind of sandwich. And we all love BLTs, bacon, lettuce, and tomato. But what we got is a BCT, a Baconian Cartesian technological sandwich. Here's Pope Benedict. The modern concept of reason is based, to put it briefly, on a synthesis between Platonism or Cartesianism and empiricism, a synthesis confirmed by the success of technology. On the one hand, it presupposes the mathematical structure of matter, its intrinsic rationality, which makes it possible to understand how matter works and to use it efficiently. This basic premise is, so to speak, the Platonic or Cartesian element in the modern understanding of nature. On the other hand, there is nature's capacity to be exploited for our purposes, and here only the possibility of verification or falsification through experimentation can yield decisive certainty. Now, the weight between the two poles can, depending on the circumstances, shift from one side to the other. The sandwich, thus, is only superficially appealing. Do you see what he's saying? Reason itself has been reduced 
to those questions on which we can use math to figure out scientific experiments, the proof of which is shown by how well we can manipulate matter and how well we can use technology. The first result of this, says Pope Benedict, is that the, quote, kind of certainty resulting from the interplay of mathematical and empirical elements can be considered scientific. Anything that would claim to be science must be measured against this criterion. Hence, the human sciences, such as history, psychology, sociology, and philosophy, attempt to conform themselves to this canon of scientif scientificity. To make a long story short, all the scholars looking at the past, the human mind and soul, cultures and societies, and even wisdom itself, were told that they were required to show evidence of what Sig Sigmund Freud would probably have called natural science envy. They were to take on only questions of a narrow and quantifiable scope. They were required to become specialists, in particular fields studying narrower and narrower subjects. Now, there's no doubt that using mathematical and experimental research methods in these areas produce some important discoveries, but there's a great narrowing as well. To take human psychology for one instance, who wants to deny that some of the neurochemical and pharmaceutical discoveries about the brain that have happened since the 1970s were fruitful? I have a bit of mental illness in my family. You don't have to be crazy to be related to me, but it's probably a good sign that you are, right? I, I, you know, I think about these things, and they're wonderful. They've helped many of my family members. I've seen those developments, and, and I've rejoiced. And yet, even so, there's been a tendency to reduce psychology to brain chemistry in the modern age, often without a lot of good evidence for it. Perhaps some of you know the work of the retired prison psychiatrist and writer Anthony Daniels. No, not C-3PO, but the pr uh, prison psychiatrist Anthony Daniels. He sometimes writes as Theodore Dalrymple. He has in both books and articles vociferously decried the tendency to fixate on adjusting chemicals and hormones to the exclusion of developing habits of thought and action that would lead to better mental health. So too, Joseph Davis, research professor at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Study. He's a Twin Cities native, so I'm sucking up to you. Um, Joe has studied this trend for years, and he has a 2020 book called Chemically Imbalanced, Everyday Suffering, Medication, and Our Troubled Quest for Self-Mastery. That book shows through both statistics and also in-depth interviews how people today think about their suffering. Not something to do with heart, soul, and mind, but only with their brain. And pills can fix it. In some scientific psychology ends up just being biology, maybe chemistry. The human is lost. So too the other social sciences and philosophies. St. John Paul II wrote in that encyclical that the problem with modern philosophy is that it has largely abandoned metaphysical study of the ultimate human questions in order to concentrate upon problems which are more detailed and restricted, at times even purely formal. And the reason is this radically reduced notion of reason, what John Paul called a distrust of reason. Now, if this empirical slash Cartesian outlook has deformed our understanding of what it means to be human, it has done worse to our understanding of God. 
Pope Benedict gives a second consequence of this reduction of reason. By its very nature, this method excludes the question of God, making it appear an unscientific or a pre-scientific question. Now, it's not clear that the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin uh, actually said the line attributed to him, you know, he, he went up into space, right, and he said, I see no God up here. But even if he didn't, you've probably heard some people saying that. There's no evidence for God. We don't have evidence for God, we're often told. The kind of evidence that we supposedly need is, of course, assumed to be quantitative and ultimately material. I remember a number of years ago, a professor of, I think he was a, a chemist at uh, University of Minnesota, Morris, uh, atheist fellow, went to, a, went to a Catholic parish, stole a consecrated host, examined it under his microscope, and then claimed, ah, oh, we have found it out. This is not Jesus. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the Eucharist and of transubstantiation and of what we think about, right? But he wasn't into metaphysics. He was into chemistry and physics. Now, if empirical science does not lead to atheism, the approach to science that has been taken surely has. And it's no wonder that so much of modern theology and pastoral formation over the last 60 years has itself taken on a tinge of the atheistic. St. John Paul observed that the Second Vatican Council, quote, stressed the positive value of scientific research for a deeper knowledge of the mystery of the human being. But, he said, the invitation addressed the theologians to engage the human sciences and apply them properly in their inquiries should not be interpreted as an implicit authorization to marginalize philosophy or put something else in its place in pastoral formation and the preparation for faith. Pope was not addressing some hypothetical here. He was addressing what had happened in many a seminary and theology department. A rigorous and broad philosophical basis for thinking theologically had indeed often been abandoned in favor of a, a layer of thin social scientific gruel, the assumptions of which were that God is not the topic, but man is. Theology departments in many Catholic universities were relabeled religious studies because it was assumed that one can't really study God, theos, but one could study the human phenomenon of religion. God, after all, cannot be experimented on or measured and get quantifiable results. But the behavior of religious people can. But what about belief in God and morality? If theology gets changed out for social sciences, what got taught? Well, there have been a number of attempts to create a scientific morality, but having no notion of this world as a creation or a nature with a structure that is more than just mathematical material, that didn't work. As Pope Benedict observed, attempts to construct an ethic from the rules of evolution or from psychology and sociology end up being simply inadequate. Because they were and are inadequate, what has been taught is ultimately a form of subjectivism or relativism. I remember filling out tests in my uh, grade school in Indiana that were aimed at getting us to distinguish between facts 
and values, right? Facts are objective, values are subjective. Now, I don't remember now, it's been years since my grade school <laughs> days. But anyway, I, I, I don't remember if God was ever brought up, but I do remember that moral judgments were put into the value category. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not into murder? Well, okay, right? <clears throat> Pope Benedict described the end result, that the specifically human questions about our origin and destiny, the questions raised by religion and ethics, then have no place within the purview of collective reason as defined by, quote, unquote, science. So understood. And thus must be re relegated to the realm of the subjective. The subject then decides on the basis of his experiences what he considers tenable in matters of religion, and the subjective conscience becomes the sole arbiter of what is ethical. Now, alas, we have seen this notion of the subjective conscience judging morality and religion being taught even by bishops and cardinals of late. As Pope Benedict concludes, this is a dangerous state of affairs for humanity, as we see from the disturbing pathologies of religion and reason which necessarily erupt when reason is so reduced that questions of religion and ethics no longer concern it. It is. For when the question of God and even morality is simply a subjective value, we are ripe for the nihilism and tyranny of which I spoke at the beginning. Pope John Paul alluded to this problem in that 1998 encyclical when he described how following that godless and amoral scientific point of view, certain scientists lacking any ethical point of reference are in danger of putting at the center of their concerns something other than the human person and the entirety of the person's life. Further still, some of these, sensing the opportunities of technological progress, seem to succumb not only to a market-based logic, but also to the temptation of a quasi-divine power over nature and even over the human being. This was the path of the various forms of Marxism, which all claimed to be scientific, and left in their wake over 100 million dead bodies in the 20th century. This has also been the path of we who live in the ostensibly free world. Perhaps you've heard what Robert G. Edwards, the inventor of in vitro fertilization, test tube babies, said in a 2003 interview. I wanted to find out exactly who was in charge, whether it was God himself or whether it was scientists in the laboratory. You'll not be surprised that he concluded it was us. Now, we may be in a period of post-modernity, as I said before, but the, particularly, but the particular claims of the vastly reduced understanding of reason are still what tend to cow or convince a certain portion of the public. Scientists, politicians, and even insurance adjusters, healthcare ethicists, and business managers have been claiming to speak in the name of the science up to this very day. Those dealing with the elderly, the infirm, those going into surgery, will give quality, Q-A-L-Y scores. That stands for quality adjusted life years. The scientific measure of the number and quality of years a patient might live tells us whether a life-saving treatment or a life-improving treatment ought to be given or not. 
Those who live in places where physicians can and now often must participate in helping people commit suicide often use such scientific measures to give advice. Those in charge of public health in many countries throughout the world use such quantitative measurements to determine that they could lock down our businesses, our schools, and our lives for several years because of a respiratory virus. You probably have many other examples you could give as well. Well, as St. John Henry Newman had argued, modern reason acting on empirical evidence and some good math has given us countless blessings for which we should indeed be grateful as a kind of form of light. But as he, borrowing from the German poet Goethe, always liked to say, the brightest light brings the darkest shadows. Our modern empire of empirical research, mathematical reasoning, shorn of the fullness of divine light and human wisdom, has struck back at us in a most destructive way. The Baconian, Cartesian, technological sandwich has had, had and still has some delicious and healthful elements, but in considering it the only thing on our menu, we have become malnourished and even in many ways poisoned. Well, what do we need in this day and age? I'd like to suggest that we need to teach people to reason again, to understand that all of us, including scientists, reason and even find certainty about many things in very unscientific ways that cannot be fit under the narrow ways of thinking that have been proposed to us over the last few hundred years. Experience, in a broad sense, plays a part, but we bring to experience first principles that we did not get from experience itself and that cannot themselves be proven. Further, our experiences are not all able to be weighed or measured in a scientific fashion and analyzed according to statistical methods. If you are married, is it because you did a quality-adjusted life years analysis of marrying this particular person? Uh, maybe. <laughs> if you came to faith in Jesus Christ and wanted to join his church, was it because you did a rigorous scientific evaluation of all the evidence? Or was there something else that played into your process of, of reasoning? I think it's pretty obvious that certain narrow questions can be analyzed in an empirical, detached, statistical way. Live on Lord Bacon. Live on Rene Descartes. But most of the really important ones can't. If I were to provide another way of thinking about thinking that manages to capture how we really think, a return of the philosophical Jedi, let's call it, I would point to authors like my beloved Newman, whose writings in the Oxford University sermons and his very difficult but well worth it book, The Grammar of Ascent, provide a realistic understanding of how the human being concretely thinks in all situations and can rationally find certainty even if not of the same sort that a chemist gets. I would point as well to an actual chemist, the philosopher Michael Polanyi who understood that even scientists in the lab think a bit differently than the scientific propagandists tell us they do. Like Newman, Polanyi understood that all our knowing is intensely personal. That's what his famous volume is called, Personal Knowledge. Now their names could be mentioned, but that's for another talk. 
For the ongoing conversion of our minds in this Lent and beyond, we need to trust our reason in an expansive sense as a gift of God. To know God, to know our own hearts and minds, and to know the whole of his creation. Now this would be a truly Christian and appropriately humble empiricism. And I hope you take it up, and I hope you get your indulgence. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, Q&A. Go ahead. Any questions? You can take that. And I'll... Yeah. I've read Melania's personal knowledge four times. You just inspired me to read it a fifth time, and I'm going to understand it this time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so a, uh, an amen for Michael Polanyi. The, uh, he was not a Catholic, but he was very sharp, and his, his thought is very good about the personal aspect of knowing, and I think that's something that, uh, th again, it fits very well with Newman's thought, uh, that we know as, as individuals on the basis of a number of different kinds of thinking, probab probabilistic thinking, uh, but also intuition and, and many other things. And when they come together, uh, you know, we can come to certainty, he said. Even if we can't prove God in that mathematical sense, we can come to certainty about God in different ways. And if he gives us the tools, they can work. Yes? It seems like this last three years, the notion of science has become the results rather than the process. Yeah. Is there a way we can work backwards from that to get back to reason? So the method is good. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is about the tendency of people to now think about the science as a set of results rather than this sort of process of rigorous investigation. How, how can we recover? You know, Newman thought it was good. How can we recover it? Um, well, I think, you know, I think I, I hinted at it at the end. I think we need to pe teach people about the broadness of reason. That's also what Pope Benedict was about, is not putting reason into this tiny little box, but helping people to understand that reason is a much more capacious thing, and we have more tools in our box. Scientists themselves use those tools quite often. Right? They, uh, they come up with hunches, and they come up with you know, kind of wild guesses. Well, is this the, uh, you know, again, is this the stereotyped, you know, I observed all 1,400 salamanders and the, uh, no, no. Quite often it's something that happened in a dream. Um, so, you know, I think teaching people that, no, we, reason is important and we want to know all the tools, but we also want to understand that those tools of math and experimental science, those don't, those don't suffice for everything. They certainly don't suffice for personal relationships. Um, and they don't, you know, they don't suffice for much of our lives. We need a more realistic sense of knowledge so that then we can say now, in certain cases, we can use what Newman would call um, you know, explicit reasoning of a certain sort. Uh, but I think you know, this is the problem, is that I think people have kind of given up on reasoning because it's this ridiculous narrow thing. And now we become uh, quite often, you know, Newman's language of a magical tree of knowledge. Um, 
you know, this is kind of where we are. Uh, if any of you have read uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, I quoted from it, or his, his space trilogy, he talked about the fact that our world was becoming such that people were both uh, scientifically narrow and uh, superstitious at the same time because they had no clue about what reason was about. And since most of us don't understand the technology we're using, you know, pretty soon people are just, you know, you know, it's magical thinking. So I, I think, you know, teaching a, a broader sense of reasoning uh, is the key so that then people can see, well, yeah, science does work in natural science realm, but we need something more. Yeah. You spoke about market-based science. Can you say more about that? Oh, uh, yeah. So that was a quotation from uh, Pope John Paul's um, Fides at Ratio, and he talked about sort of narrowing the scope, particularly of decisions to market-based logic. And uh, you know, I took it that he was referring to, and I think he was, um, oftentimes uh, the logic of the market to determine whether something is is useful, particularly in medical interventions and things like that. Well, this costs too much. Uh, you know, and like I say, scientists have been using these ways of quantifying how much a life is worth in terms of, you know, quality years. Uh, so that's the market-based logic that I think he's thinking of, thinking only about uh, how much something is worth in terms of its economic cost and not about the, the basic categories of right and wrong. What encyclical is that? Fides at Ratio, so on faith and reason. So that was his 1998 encyclical. So it famously begins that, you know, faith and reason are like two wings with which the soul ascends to God. And uh, it's the same theme that uh, Pope Benedict in the Regensburg Address and, of course, Newman in all his writings uh, was making is that the, the, the complementarity of faith and reason is necessary not merely for faith, but it's necessary for reason itself if it doesn't go into these sort of narrow rabbit holes. So, yeah. You spoke about the theft of a consecrated host and the examination that was done. In the yeah. Okay. I, I can't remember the guy's name, but. Yeah. Um, well, I was recently at a retreat, and two of the people that were there um, spoke about something which I cannot speak intelligently about at all. They mentioned that um, the host had been examined, the consecrated host and the wine, and that the, the, a drop of the blood of Jesus had yeah. been found and diagnosed and that, that it was real blood, and et cetera. And I wondered if you had heard of this, if this is just a rumor, yeah. or where this comes from. I didn't challenge it. I couldn't speak intelligently about it at yeah. all to these people, but they have a very good, strong faith. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, so the question is about uh, the, you know, what are known as Eucharistic miracles in which uh, the host or the precious blood has taken on the characteristics of flesh and been examined, and it seems to be the flesh and blood. Uh, you know, quite often they say in a, you know, even the, the DNA seems to be that of a you know, Middle Eastern person, you know, something like that. Um, I, I tend to think that's possible, but those are Eucharistic miracles, right? God doesn't, we, we often talk about the Eucharist as a miracle, but that's kind of inexact language, uh, right? It's, it's a mystery that, uh, that the whole Christ is present uh, there, but it, it does not necessarily take on those exterior physical aspects of flesh and blood. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have a miracle in which they do, 
but the professor at Minnesota Morris seemed to believe that that would be, you know, that would be the only way in which you could believe this, not understanding that, uh, you know, that that kind of uh, physical quantification of matter in a particular form is the only way in which uh, the Lord's body could be present. Uh, so, you know, so, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, those are things that are good and those are for our faith, but, uh, but, ne you know, those don't, ne you know, Jesus himself said, you know, uh, he, miracles don't always convince everybody. And so he gives them for particular reasons and we can be grateful for them, but we, we ought not to rely on them or, or give the impression that they have to be there in such a way that people could scientifically examine this for the Eucharist to be true. So that's a good question. Uh, back there. Uh, go, uh, left. Yes, you. Yes, you're left. You're my left. That was very scientific. Okay. So in theology class, the teacher was talking about how sometimes, like, well-meaning St. Agnes kids will reference on Eucharistic miracles and say, well, with that, how can the atheist, like, you know, not believe in God, but then um, my theology teacher said that the atheist, like, responds to miracles like that in a way that, like, wouldn't, like, he still wouldn't believe because the atheist, like, responds to miracles in a different way. So I was wondering if you could help explain that, like, how the atheist responds to a miracle or something that's, like, unexplainable like that. Yeah, well, I mean, this, I think this goes into what I was saying at the end about a kind of a, an understanding of knowledge that's personal in which we actually act with our minds and we have to actually make decisions about, about what we're going to accept as true. Um, Newman liked to talk about, uh, you know, about uh, antecedent probabilities, what you would expect beforehand in something. Um, and if, you're, if your antecedent understanding is, well, you know, uh, a, a guy can't rise from the dead and he can't become present here, that's going to guide how you then look at the evidence. And you're going to say, well, okay, so maybe there's even a miracle here, but I don't believe this can happen. And I think people do that all the time. They say, it can't happen, so you know, people say seeing is believing. I don't think that's true. People see stuff all the time and then go on with whatever they had in their mind beforehand. And there's, sometimes you need to make a decision to actually be able to see. The case for faith is that it makes you able to be open to different things that these sort of narrow scientists following in the wake of Lord Bacon would say, well, that's, that's certainly not possible. Uh, I think faith frees us to, to, to be able to accept uh, what is often, uh, you know, to our own minds, unbelievable. Does that help? Yeah, I think they're dismissing it. I think people people do that all the time. It can't happen, so it didn't happen. Yeah, well, I say it did too. I, I'm on your side. No, I, I I think miracles can happen too. But that's that's the thing is that you become very closed-minded, right? If you decide that there cannot be anything outside of our physical material system, anything that cannot be measured or experimented on, well, it just doesn't exist. 
So making that decision to be open to reality, I think, is important. The novelist and short story writer Flannery O'Connor said that she thought that faith helped her because it allowed her to see with her own eyes instead of creating a world in front of her. And I think that's true for all Christians. Back corner. Or, yeah, okay. Go middle, yeah, then back. Basically, you're talking, like, Newman had, Newman affirmed, like, the imperial, the scientific method and all that. It can can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Would you say that it should or even could be harmonized with the traditional rational philosophy or used alongside it? Yeah. Not necessarily harmonized or synthesized with it. Yeah, I think that's, I, yeah, I would think he would say harmonized or synthesized rather than being put alongside it. He just wanted people to understand that we can reason in much broader ways. Uh, and if a particular tool is good in the science, you know, in, in one particular endeavor, well, that's great. But not everything can be judged by that. Uh, and when you use that standard, that scientific standard, he said, really, you're getting rid of most all of human knowledge. Just as I think I quoted from uh, Pope John Paul that saying that, yeah, all, you know, when people try to apply these scientific standards to history and psychology and all that, it deformed them. Uh, but if you see, well, this is one method of getting an ver- answer to a very narrow question, right, then that's helpful. And, you know, in the, in the example of uh, psychology and mental health, obviously those, you know, those chemical analyses can help. But there are other ways of thinking about, you know, how, you know, what your mental state, the state of your soul is, uh, that, that don't necessarily rely on dopamine levels or whatever. And those things can often be very important, as many of these scientists are themselves starting to understand. The, I think the key is exactly that harmonize these methods with the truth. Uh, I don't think we need to be afraid of science, but we have to always acknowledge that, right, it's, it's a very narrow slice of our understanding. So the empirical method is not necessarily so narrow-minded, it has simply become so? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what in the quote I gave you from Newman, he says, well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of paid off big time, right? We get all these wonders, we get all, all of this development. Uh, but at the same time, if people are not able to see in these broader ways, right, then you know, they can't see what human life is about. Um, you, know, you, can, you can have all the wonders in your life and be unhappy and not see any meaning in your life. All right. I was going to say that I love uh, Newman as well. I actually wrote a paper in college on faith and reason from him when I was in England. But I also studied and majored in science. And uh, I came across a claim, uh, or a question, of faith or science. And my response, my gut reaction was, even scientific claims are based on a sort of notion of faith in the evidence. Yeah. So if I look at Pluto, I believe Pluto exists. I have empirical evidence of sorts. I have all sorts of instruments, or maybe something even more Remote, uh, more closely uh, to scientific mm-hmm. uh, discovery, but I'm still using a sense of faith in those, in the collection of the evidence to put together, and I believe the evidence to be true. Yeah. So if you could say something, I think scientists use reason more than we think they do, and faith in 
in something in these reasons, which is what Newman is about. Yeah. And Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, you know, we talk about faith and reason as being separated, but even our acts of reason have behind them a certain faith that we exercise all the time. So Newman in his sermons will say, well, we actually exercise faith in our senses and in our memory and in our reason itself. Well, is, have we proven all of this through experimental methods? I think, my, given my memory, uh, you know, I would never believe anything again, right? But we exercise a kind of faith there that is analogous and is meant to help us understand that even on these bigger questions about the nature of God and Christ, we too can exercise a faith that is not scientifically proven. Those narrow methods themselves operate based out of a kind of faith. So I think, I think that's a very good point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. One yeah, more. one more? Yeah. But for a long time, I think historically, one accusation that Protestants have made against Catholics is that Catholics are so superstitious. They see a miracle around every corner. Yeah, yeah. And I, I too, after doing some reading from various uh, skeptics, either atheists or in one case, uh, a Greek Orthodox woman who had a point to make regarding some commonly believed Catholic miracles. So I think that the evidence in favor of some miracles could is a bit weak, perhaps, and an atheist could perhaps challenge them fairly easily. Um, yeah. One example would be certain uh, saints that are believed to be incorruptible. There are some um, scientific arguments against that. So what would you say to those people, especially maybe in a more educated strata of society, mm -hmm. who feel that, that they can fairly easily disprove um, some miracles? Would you say that, that, that if those miracles can be disproved, that that should be a challenge to faith or not? Yeah, well, no, I, I think the way, so the question is uh, miracles. Are we too credulous about these things? Um, and is this, is this a problem for us? Um, I think the Catholic position on miracles is, is actually fairly sane, fairly sensible, and indeed skeptical. Um, you know, you, whenever anything that's ostensibly miraculous happens, there is a serious investigation. You know, if you're going to be named a canonized saint, um, you know, after your death, you have to produce some miracles by your intercession. Well, what, you know, what do they do with these miracles? Well, uh, you know, the, the examiners of these alleged miracles have to go and look at all the scientific material and they have to talk to the doctors and figure out whether, especially in cases of like healing, is there any sort of merely natural way in which this could have come about? And so it's, you know, a lot of miracles don't pan out, so to speak. It turns out that 
what you thought was something that was perhaps a, a dramatic show of God's power that breaks the laws of nature was just a merely well-timed event, which doesn't mean that God didn't, wasn't responsible for it. It just doesn't mean it was that kind of a miracle in this strict sense. And I think, you know, with, especially with, you know, other kinds of events, the church is pretty serious. If there, you know, you had an apparition of the Blessed Virgin, okay, well, you know, they have to, they don't say anything about it until the apparitions stop. And then the conclusion is either, this was definitely not the Virgin Mary because she would never say that. Uh, or it is, well, this could be the Virgin Mary, but you're not obligated to believe in it. So, um, you know, on almost every example of miracles, I think the church takes, right, it takes the right approach. It could be, uh, maybe not, but we don't require you to believe in these things. And so I think you're probably, you know, this may be, you know, like well-intentioned St. Agnes students, well-intentioned Catholics in general may give off the impression that every, you know, every misshapen piece of French toast is the Virgin Mary appearing to us. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but, but we can be skeptical too, and we can be sensible while at the, at the same time acknowledging what the sort of empirical atheist materialist says can't happen. We say it can, probably not, but it can, and then we we uh, we adjust accordingly. So, okay, all right. Thank you. Just a few announcements. Uh, obviously, we are going to need a little bit of help in order to uh, clear the room again. If you're able to do that, I'd greatly appreciate that. And also, next week, we have our fifth installment. Dr. Dennis Kemp, Kemp, I'm sorry, Dr. Kenneth Kemp will be talking on Darwinism and the question of origins. So again, please do come back next week after 7 p.m. Vespers. Also, uh, we have... 40 hours continuing tomorrow. If you have an extra uh, half an hour, hour to pray in front of our Lord, please do so tomorrow. And uh, then we have the closing ceremony at the 1030 Ordinary Form Latin High Mass. Will we, uh, we will have, of course, a procession indoors honoring our blessed Lord, asking him to enter more deeply into our lives. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. And Father, we ask you to send your blessings upon us and help us to always uh, use your gifts in order to know you, to love you, and to serve you more each day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And again, thank you again to Dr. Deeble.